I think what this hymn speaks to and all the stories that are connected to it, it speaks to something more universal, that the sprinkled blood speaks a better word, that we are all um, both victim and oppressor. And there isn't a single human being that doesn't stand in need of grace because of the evil things that have been done to us and because of the, the evil things that we ourselves have done. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. With me, we have Dr. Bruce Hindmarsh from Regent College in Vancouver, a renowned author, scholar, theologian, and a great resource to the church and to the greater world. Thanks for being here. Delighted to be with you, David. So this is the 250th anniversary of the famous song, Amazing Grace. Some consider it to be the most famous hymn in history. Why have you had a draw to research and spend so much time of your career learning and focusing on this? Um, I, When I was doing my doctoral work in the 1990s in Oxford, I sort of found my way. I sort of stumbled onto John Newton. And for the kinds of things you've said, he was sort of known for writing this hymn, Amazing Grace. And that's that was sort of a point in, oh, this is an interesting person. Maybe I should find out more about him. And the more I found out about him and his story and the drama of his story and the richness of his life in Christ and his theology and uh, so on, it became um, something I wanted to study. And my children, you know, would say that their dad reads dead people's mail for uh, a living. And I began to read his, his mail. I began to read his correspondence, found that he was an amazing spiritual director. And so I did an awful lot of work on... Uh, the period of his ministry as a pastor in the English Midlands, a little market town called Olney, where from 1764 onward, he was a, a pastor in the Church of England. And his pastoral theology and just the richness of his evangelical ministry as a uh, parish minister there and then later in London. And I sort of focused on that and I left to one side sort of uh, people have talked about there always been biographies that talked about his background his dramatic conversion as a, a former slave trader and his later work in abolition i didn't focus on that so much as on his theology but i found him a, an inspiring figure got to know him really well during those years and now that it's the 250 year anniversary of his writing and the first singing of amazing grace i revisited the whole of his life story and with a friend, uh, Craig Borlase, we've written a book. It's coming out on March 7th called Amazing Grace, the story of John Newton and the surprising story behind the song, where we've revisited the whole of his life, including the slave trade and abolition. And again, I think there is his story is kind of a, it's a parable in which each one of us can find our own story, our own need for grace. We can kind of find the need for grace, the need for reconciliation, the depth of human misery, the human condition, it's all there in this quite dramatic story. We've done the, some of the principal filming in England, but we have a film related to the book and uh, to the 250-year anniversary um, that will be coming out in the fall. Um, so this is a big year, 250 years of amazing grace. And um, I think there's some hopes that there might be an amazing grace Sunday at some point when churches all over the world will sing amazing grace. And um, but it is an opportunity to celebrate the, the hymn and to remember the stories behind the hymn. As you uh, have seen this this song and the, and the life of John Newton again with a, a fresh perspective, what about this story of being in slavery and in storm and 
and then going into this rich, deep evangelical ministry that has left a a deep impression for you personally? I think it's the sense just that um, I keep having the the verse in Hebrews that comes to mind about the sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You know, the blood of Abel and this awful murder that happens, uh, you know, in the is it, uh, you know, early in the chapters of Genesis, Genesis 4, I think, 3 and 4. And then, um, and the, and at the, this violence, you know, that's a part of the human condition, this uh, crying out for vengeance. And one response to that is the blood feud and just people endlessly polarized and in conflict. We think the polarization of the world today. And yet, I think what this hymn speaks to and all the stories that are connected to it, it speaks to something more universal, that the sprinkled blood speaks a better word, that we are all um, both victim and oppressor. And there isn't a single human being that doesn't stand in need of grace because of the evil things that have been done to us and because of the, the evil things that we ourselves have done. And somehow this this hymn speaks to that. I think it's astonishing, really, David, that a hymn that speaks of gratitude, this is a hymn that is, speaks of gratitude for grace. And when John Newton first introduced this hymn to his congregation on January the 1st in 1773, he preached a sermon alongside of it. And the very way the sermon begins is by saying, uh, talking about uh, the need for gratitude. And here's a here's a hymn that speaks of gratitude for grace received. And it's to this hymn that people turn when life is at its very worst, when the very worst tragedies happen, people sing this as a kind of cry for grace. You know, I was going through just some of the disasters, national disasters in America, where people have sung this. You know, the Swiss Air 111, uh, when it crashed actually off the Peggy's Cove, I think it was en route from uh, New York to Geneva. Um, and when loved ones were looking out over the waves where their um, uh, their sons and daughters and friends and family members had died, they stopped and they sang Amazing Grace. The Space Shuttle Challenger disaster in 1986, afterwards people sang Amazing Grace. The Oklahoma City Federal Building, after that disaster, that sort of you know domestic terrorist attack, people gathered to sing Amazing Grace. After 9-11, there were vigils all at Union Square and all over the America where people sang Amazing Grace. The um, uh, Clement, the uh, Pinckney um, and the Charleston shooting, the race-based shooting in 2015, famously at the, the funeral, President Obama spontaneously begins singing Amazing Grace and the whole congregation kind of follows. And uh, astonishing that this song, written by a former slave trader, has become an African-American spiritual, a gospel standard. Everybody knows it. And in a time of tragedy, universally, people turn to this hymn. So I'm thinking this hymn has gone really deep in our consciousness. And it's also popular. And I think those two things are, are connected. It's both deep and wide. Um, In 1947, Mahalia Jackson, the great gospel singer, recorded this for Apollo Records. And I think that was the beginning of the hymn moving out of the church into the general popular marketplace and into the era of radio. And then um, and it became a popular song in 1971. 
Judy Collins, the folk singer, after sort of the Vietnam era where this had been sung as a kind of protest song. She records it as a kind of folk song in 1971. And it charted on the Billboard Top 40. It became incredibly popular. And again, there's a kind of... Um, she would close her concerts with this song. People would hold hands. And then in 1972, the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards played it on bagpipes. And that's the most incredible thing to me, that that actually charted on the Billboard Top 40 for, I think, eight weeks or something like that. In Canada, too, this is true, you know... Um, at the funeral of Michel Trudeau, who died in that skiing accident in 1998, you hear Amazing Grace played on bagpipes. In um, At the Orleans High School near Ottawa, where there was a school shooting, um, the cameras, I think it was CTV, CBC, show up that night, and there's a group of students who gather, high school students who gather and hold hands, and they start singing Amazing Grace, and it's on the national news that night. In 2014, when three Mounties were killed in Moncton, were shot in Moncton, there was an overnight vigil, over a thousand people gathered. I think it was at the RCMP headquarters and, uh, and sang Amazing Grace. So isn't it astonishing that it's not just popular, plays on the radio, charts on the Billboard, you know, top 40, but that it's gone so deep emotionally that people connect at a deep emotional level to this song that speaks about grace, but in fact has become an awareness of how deeply the human condition stands in need of grace. Mm. Well, that's an incredible overview of the impact it's had. You've got to think, uh, Dr. Heinmarsh, the cathartic way that this song has been received by you and me, that it, it came from that same emotionally, this full range of emotions in which John Newton first penned it. Uh, as you've kind of dug into some of these lyrics, wh which of those lyrics do you think that we seem to grab hold of? I mean, of, of course, there's that the chorus, but other ones that, that jump out at us too. Well, it's interesting. The turning point in the hymn, if you had the original lyrics and the last three verses um, have been replaced in many hymn books by the verse, when we've been there 10,000 years, uh, that was an interloper that um, somebody named Edwin Othello Excel added to the hymn and, and took out the last three verses. He added that in 1910. Uh, but if, um, if you divide the, 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 the hymn in half, the hinge upon which it turns is grace has led me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. And that's, um, that line is one that I often return to because John Newton wrote this for New Year's Day. It was a time to look back, a time of reflection, not just a time of celebration and, um, you know, fireworks, but it was a time of sober reflection on the passing of time. I look back. How has grace brought me through toils and snares? How, how has grace, why am I still alive given all that I've been through? How has grace preserved me, blessed me, given me far more than I deserve, notwithstanding all my sinfulness? I look back, but I also then look ahead that I can trust this grace, whatever life brings, whatever suffering it brings, whatever God calls me to. And then if the, the original last three stanzas, stanza four is for the balance of this life, as long as life endures. A stanza five was about facing death. It was facing the hour of my death, grace will be there. And the last stanza is the end of all things. 
The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. So it, it calls you, like, looks to the future. So that little hinge, grace has brought me safe thus far, grace will lead me home. John Newton is introducing this to his congregation because he would write a hymn every week to help them with, you know, remember the sermon and learn the sermon and, and so on. He's helping them on New Year's Day, his congregation, look back and look forward to remember God's grace them in the past, but also to say, whatever God brings, whatever you're going to face, whether you face cancer, whether you face physical suffering, or whether you face persecution, whether you face, like, whatever you're going to face, grace will be enough and and. God's grace will be there and it will it will guide you all the way home. So it becomes what the Jesuits uh, call an examine of consciousness, uh, they, they would say, where we examine ourselves, we, we look back over thoughts, words, and deeds over the past you know, day or the past week or the past year, and then we're able to um, look ahead with grace and be aware, what are my fears as I face the future? How can I trust God? That actually was a part of Newton's own personal devotional practices. Well, actually, every day he'd do a kind of review in his diary. And then before Sunday, uh, Saturday night, he'd go for a walk and he would do this. And then he marked key moments in his own biography, his birthday, uh, his wedding anniversary, which he thought was a great grace of God in his life. The moment he began his ministry in this market town of Olney. But also he remembered on March 21st, the anniversary of the storm. Every And it was the last entry in his diary, remembering uh, this storm, March 21st, 1748, when he first cried out to God for mercy in a North Atlantic storm, a near shipwreck. One man swept overboard, the ship uh, breaking apart, and he should have died. He should have died in his sins, unrepentant, going to a Christless eternity. He knew that that's what he deserved. And he muttered his first prayer for mercy. He is piloting this ship in the midst of this storm, not knowing if he will live or die, tied to the ship to avoid being swept overboard. And he just says, if this will not do, then the Lord have mercy. And then he thought, who am I? Who am I to ask for mercy? How could there be mercy for somebody like me? All the agonies of a repressed conscience came to the surface and he began. He had lots, he had time to think. Even though the hymn reflects that experience, it's written decades later. No doubt he is including and incorporating his own experience into this. But I think he's even thinking more universally that this is every human experience is caught up in this story of grace in, uh, in him, Amazing Grace. And he really wants his people on New Year's Day, 1773, to understand that God's grace is there. It's to cover the, the sins of the past and it is to take us safely all the way home. Dr. Heinmarsh, you talk about some of the ways that he would uh, chronicle events in his life and his uh, devotional way of of approaching God, and this is something that really drew you to this man. Uh, do you think that there was a grace up, upon God in, in forming this man after going through that event that would enable him to be able to pen this song as eloquently and powerfully as he did? Um, yeah, that's a good question, David. I think he was, by the time he wrote this hymn, he was a changed man. Here is somebody whose life took a dramatic turn. 
and uh, he became a very different person. As a young person, he used to say, it's like his motto was never deliberate. He was impulsive, he just did whatever. And he became uh, quite uh, hard-hearted and hardened. And, um, and you know, when I look at his biography into his 20s, like all the way up into his 20s, you can have a lot of sympathy for him as someone who, you know, sometimes it's because of bad things that have happened to us that we need grace because the evil things that have happened to us. His mother dies when he's just before his seventh birthday. His father is away at sea. His father is a captain in the merchant marine and quite a severe person. And he obviously doesn't feel very close to his father. And you have a little boy who's left all alone. Here's somebody who needed grace, a young boy who feels abandoned and alone. At age 18, carelessly, he's wandering sort of near the River Thames uh, as uh, war is about to break out with France. And he is impressed, as they call it, kidnapped, legally kidnapped, and into the Royal Navy. And historians, maritime historians, talk about a white man's slavery, what it's like to be uh, impressed and become a part of uh, and serve before the mast as a common sailor in the Navy. It's a brutal life. And, um, and that happened to him. And, you know, and he also, you know, he eventually ends up um, exchanged out of the Navy. Uh, he, he just is desperate to escape the Navy. When the ship uh, that he was on, the naval ship, was leaving um, the coast of uh, southern England for a five-year tour of duty going to India, he was just desperate. And he said he seriously contemplated murder-suicide murdering the captain and then killing himself. That's how low he was at this point. And uh, uh, he was in love with a woman named Mary Catlett. He thought he'd never see her again. And he was just desperate. He gets out of the Navy. He managed to get himself exchanged out of the Navy for some sailors in a Guinea ship, as they called a slave trader off the coast of Africa. And that is the moment, desperate to escape the Navy, that he finds himself, if you like, in the slave trade. He's on it for about six months. He is the steward of that ship as they just begin slave trading. And then he ends up moving out of that ship onto the shore of Africa on Plantain Island, working like an apprentice to somebody who's like a wholesaler for slaves. They call it a slave factory. And he's working there. But what happens instead, he he comes into conflict. He comes to uh, falling sort of out of favor uh, with his uh, employer and his powerful black uh, mistress, who is a princess of the Bombo people and uh, and a key uh, slave trader herself. He falls out of favor with them and he himself ends up being enslaved. He's in chains, he's kept in chains, he's destitute, he's malarial, he several times nearly died. And it's kind of a low point where he became, he said, the servant of slaves, the slave of slaves in Africa. So here are three things we can sympathize with this young man. The death of his mother, kidnapped and impressed into the Navy, the brutal life of the Navy, uh, enslaved himself in Africa. But then he also needed grace for the things that he did, not just what was done to him. And often, no matter how wounded we are and how much we feel victimized we're aware that we also 
there are things for, that we have done um, and where we become complicit. Often we repeat the evils. We wound with our wounds, as we say. We hurt other people. And he ends up, he said he was blinded. A uh, custom example and interest had blinded my eyes that he wasn't aware of the iniquity and the sinfulness of the slave trade. He ends up uh, being uh, first a kind of first mate and then uh, a captain for three voyages as a slave trader, unaware of the, um, the evils of, of, of the slave trade. In between these things that happened to him and his increasing involvement in the slave trade is when that storm happened. It wasn't a slave ship. It was um, a cargo ship, if you like. And when he was converted and he's beginning, so he's beginning to find his faith in Christ and he's a slave trader. And we have to reckon with the possibilities of self-deception as somebody who is beginning to genuinely beginning to grow in Christ, to read his Bible. He's kind of a solitary Christian. He's involved in the slave trade. He was not the most cruel of slave traders. Uh, he was, um, he said he thought of himself as being his, is like he was a jailer and he began to pray for a more humane occupation, but we don't know how soon it was after he left the slave trade in 1754, when he began to feel remorse and real misgivings and began to develop what we call anti-slavery sentiment. It's sort of anti-slavery, and then there's full becoming a full abolitionist. We know he becomes an abolitionist in 1788, but there's some indications. A, a friend of mine, John Coffey, a historian at Leicester, has made a very plausible, strong case that Newton had uh, developed strong anti-slavery sentiments not long after leaving the slave trade and already in the 1760s was uh, contributing, possibly contributing to the work of Anthony Benezet, the Quaker, and others in uh, their anti-slavery movements. He has about a decade after he leaves the slave trade when he has a chance to be discipled and grow in Christ. And uh, he becomes self-taught. He learns Hebrew. He learns Greek. He even learned Syriac, which is amazing. And um, he's working in the, essentially as a kind of civil servant in the customs officer in the port of Liverpool. And because of war with France, the shipping drops off and there's a lot of time to study. And he becomes a lay minister. He begins preaching. He begins traveling. He meets George Whitfield. He meets John Wesley. He's excited by the revival of religion that's going on. And he wants to be ordained and give himself to ministry. And he feels like given all that he has experienced, the grace, the forgiveness, um, he can begin to offer that to others. In 1764, in his 30s, he's ordained. And he becomes a minister then. And in a sense, the tumultuous part of his life is over. Um, but by this point, I think it's possible to begin seeing that Newton that I was attracted to, who is a gentleman. In a sense, when you know how much you've been forgiven, uh, you're able to be gentle with others. He knows the human condition. I've read probably, I don't want to exaggerate, hundreds, maybe thousands of his letters to ordinary people offering counsel and advice like a spiritual director. He knows the human heart. He knows the need we have of grace. He knows sometimes that we're afraid and we tremble. You know, it was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. And he has a gentle touch with people, with ordinary people, people of all classes. And he really becomes a, um, he sees a local revival, regional kind of revival. 
and he becomes a part of the wider revival movement. It's in that it's in that context that he writes this hymn. So I think you know we've seen you can see in John Newton's life the grace of conversion as a young person in that storm, where he realizes um, I need. I actually need God to do for me what I cannot do for myself. In desperation, I cry out for mercy and I receive mercy and I receive grace. We also see at the end of his life, um, I mean, it's there all the way through his life, but you see poignantly in the context of abolition, the grace of contrition. I think there's also a kind of grace of conversion over time that you see in his life, that kind of transformation of his character. So at the beginning of the Christian life, it was all about my feelings. At the end of the Christian life, it's all about keeping my eyes on Jesus, no matter what, and being focused upon Christ. Yeah, that's so good. Well, I think we're going to have to leave it at that, but just such uh, such food to chew on. And uh, thank you for sharing your thoughts on this and uh, look forward to reading that book when it comes out. Dr. Bruce Hindmarsh from Regent College in Vancouver. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, David. And if you want to read up any more on John Newton and Amazing Grace, of course, keep tabs for that book to come out in March. But also, we'll have the show notes linking to the important events and dates mentioned from this episode over at davidmanmedia.com. Next time on Culture at a Crossroads. We all know Canada is becoming more secular, but what does that mean for Canadians' perception of religion? President of the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, Bruce Cleminger, will join the show to talk about his new book, The New Orthodoxy, Canada's Civil Religion. And do join us next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus. Jesus.